Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He had his whole life ahead of him, was blossoming into one of the best hitters in baseball, wouldn't take his paycheck because he didn't feel like he lived up to expectations and, in turn, donated that paycheck to charity. That was the kind of person Lyman Bostic was. And tragically, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. A life cut too short. A baseball career just realizing its potential wiped away by a bullet that should have never been. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the tragic story of Lyman Boston. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could tune in for another story of a hero long forgotten. This time, the story of a life cut too short as well. The story of Lyman Bostic. Not only a terrific ball player just coming into his prime, but as author K. Adam Powell said, he was so much more than just a ball player. He made an impression on people. Um, he may not have lived very long. He may not have reached the accolades he would have. But in his short time, he impacted lives. The way I've structured today's podcast is a little different than how I've presented stories previously. We're basically going to follow Lyman's story chronologically from the beginning of his career with a few detours to his tragic end. And for those of you who don't know his story, here it is in a nutshell. Lyman was a young and gifted baseball player. In just his second year with the Twins, he hit 323 and followed that with a 336 campaign and parlayed that into a terrific free agent contract with the California Angels. Towards the end of his first season with the Angels, the team had traveled to Chicago for a series with the White Sox. As usual, Lyman went to nearby Gary, Indiana to visit his family, his uncle, and a young woman Lyman used to tutor, along with her sister. In a jealous rage, the sister's estranged husband assumed all the wrong things, pulled up alongside a car they were in, and shot a bullet into the car. Lyman was struck and killed. Just an awful, awful end to a life that had shone so brightly. Now, before we get to Lyman and Adam Powell, I just want to let all of you know that this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Every week, I let all of you know about Audible. It really is a terrific way to get your reading in. And if you sign up for a 30-day free trial, you get a free download. And Audible sends Sports Forgotten Heroes a 
a little something to keep the podcast going. Right now, I'm listening to Roger Kahn's great book about the Brooklyn Dodgers, The Boys of Summer. There's close to 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Also, don't forget to follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Search for our page on Facebook and get the latest news about Sports Forgotten Heroes at our site, SportsFH.com. Now, without further ado, joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about the life and death of Lyman Bostic is Kay Adam Powell, author of Lyman Bostic, The Inspiring Life and Tragic Death of a Ball Player. Hey, Adam, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, so I don't do a lot of shows about stars who had short careers. Lyman Bostic only played in the majors for four years. Well, almost four years, yet his story, I think, is one that should be told. Now, before we get into what happened to Lyman and and how tragic it was. Would you please paint a picture for us of just how good a ball player Lyman Bostic was? Well, I, I think he was, you know, born to play the game. Um, his father, Lyman Bostock Sr., had been a, you know, a player in the old Negro Leagues. Um, a first baseman had played in the old uh, East-West All-Star Game uh, in 1941, and then went went off to World War II for a few years. Came back. Uh, played into his late 30s, uh, was a, a 300 hitter, was known for being a good glove man at first base. So I think even though he didn't really have a relationship with his father, he moved with his mother to California when he was only seven years old. I think he just had that natural ability. Um, I think there was some opportunities along the way for him to kind of lose his way, if you will, particularly when he was in college. But um, I think in the end, he was he, he knew he was meant to play the game, and, and he just consistently got incrementally better. Um, you know, you hear about a lot of guys that peak when they're in high school, or maybe they get to double A or triple A, and that's just as good. But it seemed like Laman Vostok kept getting better and better and better even after he got to the major leagues. Um, so I think a lot of it was just natural ability. Um, he was an instinctive hitter, certainly not a power guy, but, um, you know, very smooth stroke, uh, very level right across the middle of the plate, uh, a line drive hitter, uh, consistent, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, a high on base percentage. It went up every season for his first three seasons, at least up to a peak of 389 in 1977. So he was a guy that can consistently get on base to consistently score runs, played a solid outfield. He kind of moved around. He didn't really have a dedicated position um, in the outfield. He kind of played a little bit of center and he could play the corners, but we, he was quick. Um, he was just a well-rounded baseball player. And um, he was one of the first guys that was able to really cash in on his skills before, of course, the uh, horrible tragedy of his death. Right. Hey, um, as far as you're concerned, Adam, you write for the ACC Journal, and have, I think three books to your credit centering around the ACC and the University of North Carolina. So I have to ask, where does your interest in Lyman Bostic come from? Why a book about him? Well, that's a very fair question. Um, I've always been a baseball guy. I mean, I grew up around the sport, and it's just always been my favorite sport. I think being here in North Carolina, you know, I kind of latched on to what's 
big around here. <laughs> we don't have professional baseball, at least not major league baseball in North Carolina, but um ACC basketball is is it here. So um that was a big part of it. But um you know, I read an article that Jeff Perlman wrote on the uh, 20th anniversary of it or I'm mm-hmm. sorry, the 30th anniversary. I think mm-hmm. it was 2008. That was part of my interest. I I had known of him before, but I, I think just doing some research and just Realize, I think what really set me up to write the book was when I started reading some of the things he did off the field, things like, you know, hanging out with young kids and doing free clinics and buying them uh, equipment. And, you know, he was he was really big about reaching out to young kids and trying to to impart wisdom on them and, and kind of provide them uh, perhaps a figure, especially in some of the inner city neighborhoods in L.A., um, to provide a little bit of a, maybe a father figure he himself did not have. So I think mm-hmm. that element of it really appealed to me. Um, he was a good man. And, and I think separate from his baseball skills, I think he would be a community leader um, in a community, uh, regardless of his baseball talents. And it's just such a shame to see such a bright light in a community um, dimmed the way it was. So I think that that was a big part of it for me, but um, that was sort of my, my thing, my thing started doing the research for the, for the, mm-hmm. so, uh, getting back to his dad, who, who you said played in the Negro leagues, he played for some, uh, some, uh, s- some teams that, uh, a lot of people have never heard of the, uh, Brooklyn Royal Giants, the Birmingham Black Barons, Chicago American Giants, the New York Cubans. So there was a pedigree for Lyman and, and he was a heck of a schoolboy player, uh, he went on to play in college. Just how good was he, and 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 is that correct? The real story was he did not. He did, and you can go back and look through the the, the amateur draft. He did not get drafted until 1973, uh, or I'm sorry, 1972 by the Minnesota Twins. The St. Louis Cardinals. This is according to Bob Heater, his college coach. The St. Louis Cardinals scout was constantly around Manual Arts High School in L.A., which is where he went. Um, Harvard Square, I think, is the is the ballpark they played at. He finished second in L.A. as, as far as the city in hitting his senior year. He would have won the batting title, but I think he went hitless the last day, the last game of the season. But anyway, there was interest in him um, from pro scouts in high school, but they just didn't quite. There was a couple of things, and again, this is according to his college coach. They weren't quite sure what position he was going to be. He was skinny kid he was only like 150 pounds or something like that in high school and he played third base and they they just knew he wasn't really he was not a corner infielder um so i think they saw the hitting skills but it just wasn't very refined at the time so even though there was interest there he he was not a, a pro prospect so to speak um, in 1968, 1969, around the time you know he was finishing high school, so he uh-huh. goes to um, what's well, now Cal State Northridge. At that time, it was San Fernando State University um, in Northridge, California, a little bit north of, of Los Angeles. He goes up there on just a standard uh, whatever their a- a- academic or athletic scholarships were at the time. Um, and you're right, he did not play his first two seasons. He 
he got called up in, and obviously when we start talking about, you know, 1968, um, you know, a lot of things were going on in the world and baseball kind of took a, a back step at that, at that period in history. And, and he got called up in a little bit of the, um, the black power movement, if you will, on that campus. And there was mm-hmm. actually an incident around the time of the election, uh, right? I think it might've even been the day before the election with uh, Nixon and, and Hubert H. Humphrey. Um, and they actually um, went into the, the main administration building and, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you'd say took it over or whatever, but they, they went in and kind of stormed into the building and kind of just had a, had a siege, if you will, there for a while. And he got caught up in that and was actually, um, one of seven so-called ringleaders of it and, um, faced some criminal charges for that. And that kind of derailed him. And then the second year, he uh, he w- he was told by Bob Eager not not to play anymore. He was more or less kicked off the team, and that had nothing to do with the the, um, the Black Power movement he was involved in. It was much more to do with his own work habits. He he you know showed up late for practice. He slacked off. Um, Coach Eager said he just didn't. Um, show the kind of discipline, and, and they won the national championship that year. That's the interesting thing. 1970, San Fernando Valley, they won the national championship in the small division, or I guess it now be Division Two. But um, they were a, a high level program, and, and Lyman just at that time was not of the mental. He he wasn't ready to to be a part of a team like that. He just he just mentally wasn't there. He was, he was kind of in another place. So um he was told not not to come back and and what happened which is kind of interesting and I I touch on this in the book. He hung around a lot that spring. This was his sophomore year. Um he had already met what would end up being his future wife who was a very positive influence on him. Mm-hmm. Um and um, he, he hung around the ballpark. He, he saw this team having all this success. And in fact, you can go back and look at some of the old Minnesota Twins media guides, and they actually list Lyman won a national championship in 1970. At but he actually was not on that team. Huh. But um, after they won that championship, he that that following summer he went to Coach Hegert and did what he had to do to get invited back on the team, which is to apologize and to. Uh, commit to doing what needed to be done. And, and Coach Eager provided him that opportunity, nothing more than an opportunity. But it was a good timing for Lyman because he got there in 1971. San Fernando Valley had lost much of their talent from the year before. They only had a couple of main guys back. So he comes in and becomes one of the top players, not just on that team, but in that whole uh, conference. Um, his what well, was his third year of, of college, but actually his first year of, of college baseball. And then the last year, 1972, is when they made it back to the championship round. They lost in the championship game. They did finish second. And Lyman was an All-American, one of the, along with one of the pitchers, one of the two key players on that team. I, I want to say he might have hit 340 or something his wow. junior year. But then he he didn't hit quite as well that last year, but he did phenomenally in the World Series. I think he had a couple of home runs. He made some big plays in the field. And that's what really drew the attention um, of the Minnesota Twins. And I think it was a week or so after that is when they drafted him. It was a pretty late draft selection. But um, as it turned out, the Minnesota Twins were an ideal fit for Lyman Bostock because they did not have a lot of depth in their outfield at that time. 
Um, and he was able to just shoot through the minor leagues. I think he got drafted in the summer of 72, and he made their opening day roster in 75. So he, he really shot through their farm system. And it's part of what I was talking about before, him just consistently getting better throughout those years. Was he a natural? I, I think he was one of these guys that um, combined natural ability with a real um, – desire to get better but but i also think one of the key things for lionel bostock was his personality um i don't think he took himself or the game too seriously not to say he was a clown or a jokester but i just think he played with this kind of loose relaxed ease and it Mm -hmm. was i mean you know some people might today call it a swagger i don't know but i mean you look at old clips of him he just seems so in control on the ball field you know i can only think of and you know Somebody may dispute me on this, but I only really think of one or two times where he really lost his cool in the ball field. One, the infamous fight with Al Hrabrowski of the the, uh, Kansas City Royals Mm -hmm. when he threw two pitches right at his head. This was about a week before he died, and he stormed the mound, and they had a brawl. But um, he he really played with this kind of controlled ease. He he made it look easy. Uh, I guess that's probably (laughs) the best way I could explain it. When when he when he reached the majors with the Twins, how much of an influence did a guy like Rod Carew have on him? That that's a really good question. I would say Rod Carew had a, a role, but another one that played maybe even more of a role was Tony Oliva. He was kind of finishing his career at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, still a key guy. He was kind of a DH. His knees were really tore up at that point, and he just couldn't do what he had done in the '60s. But he was almost like a surrogate coach. Um, what what Rod Carew was able to do was to kind of bring Lyman's emotions in control. The one thing that I, I guess this goes against what I said a minute ago, but the one thing when he first came up that first year, he 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 would get upset, especially when he would get like a called third strike. He would kind of now he wouldn't necessarily flip out on the field or anything, but he would kind of brood in the dugout or sulk or or whatever. And and Rod Curry really worked with him on that as far as um controlling his um his patterns at the plate, the ability to to hang in there in a two strike count and um to fight off of you know a, a curveball, whatever it would be, a, a guy's trying to, to freeze you. Um, but really, I would I would venture to say that Tony Oliva was probably just as much, if not more, of a of a role model for for Lyman in those early years, um, with with his um, just outright knowledge of, of hitting and also kind of that fatherly influence. I think Rod Carew was in the prime of his career at that time. Not to say he wasn't there to be a mentor, but but Oliva being at his age at that point, just at the time and place when he came up, he was much more in a position to kind of be that um, mentor, if you will. Um, but I think Carew definitely helped him, not just with the, with the strike zone thing, but I also think just having a guy like that in the lineup that you got to pitch around, particularly in 1977 when he was you know, pushing 400 most mm-hmm. of that summer, um, having a guy like that in the lineup, you can only imagine the, 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 the pitches that Lyman was able to get um, hitting ahead of him in the order. Um, because, you know, you, you don't want to put a guy like that on base to let Rod Carew come yeah. up. So um, I, I think um, having a, a superstar like that in the lineup helped in a variety of ways. But, um, but like I said, I think, I think Oliva was more of the mentor in the early part of his career. And when the Twins selected Lyman, they were a good team. They were not, uh, you know, the Twins of the early 1980s 
or you know, they That's were a correct. decent team. And how important was that in the development of Lyman Bostic? Well, they had won uh, the first two American League West titles in 69 and 70. And by that time, they had kind of become entrenched as the second best team in that division. Oakland had kind of come on by then. They won in 71 and, of course, 72, 73, 74. They won the, the three straight World Series. So it, it, it worked out for Lyman with the Twins because they just didn't have a ton of outfield depth at that point in time. So he was able to kind of move through their minor league system in a way that might not have been quite the same if he had been drafted by, say, the New York Yankees or the Cincinnati Reds mm-hmm. or the Los Angeles Dodgers or, or some teams that were a little bit more kind of set up. When he, when he got to the big leagues in 75, he was kind of competing with guys like Dan Ford, Steve Braun. Um, of course, Larry Heisel had gotten to the big leagues by then. So, um, you know, but it wasn't like he was trying to break into a, a, a starting lineup with a, you know, a Lou Pinnell and a Mickey Rivers and a, and a Reggie Jackson or a, you know, look at the Red Sox with Dwight Evans and Fred Lynn and, and Jim Rice in those years. You know, he, he was able to come into a situation where they needed help in the outfield. Of course, they had Rod Carew hitting 350 every season. <laughs> they had Oliva. They had solid, he had fairly solid pitching. Now, Burt Blylevin, I want to say he left in 76. They had him up until then. Uh, Dave Goltz was a solid major league pitcher. Bill Campbell was a was a good relief pitcher. So they had some pieces in place, and they were you know they were a solid um, you know upper upper I would say upper division team at that time. Um, but uh, but it, it definitely that first year, of course, Lyman suffered a pretty severe injury that first season. But um, it definitely took him that first year to kind of just get get acclimated to to learn the ropes again kind of get more familiar with with the strike zone and 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 the ability to to have a professional at bat um but but by 76 he was one of the top I mean he by his second full season 76 he was um competing for the batting title I mean by within the last week of the season he was in the hunt to, to win the batting title in 76 and Carew of course hit 388 in 77 but Lyman finished second he hit 336 and um, that 77 was really the season that um, shot Lyman into the stratosphere and was and allowed him to get that that huge contract he got with the Angels. And and baseball was different than than it is today when it comes to free agency. So how did he become eligible for free agency so soon? And and again. It not it wasn't like it is today. I mean, you sort of had to draft players. Not every team right. could negotiate a contract. Explain how free agency worked back then. Yes, and it's really a fascinating thing to talk about. What happened? Um, you know, Dave McNally and uh, Messersmith, Andy Messersmith, um, challenged um, the very concept of free agency in I want to say 1975. And what they did was essentially they didn't sign a contract and um, they played an entire season without a contract. So how the reserve clause had worked for a hundred years or however many years it had been, players signed a one year contract every single year. And you just signed one year deals your whole career. You came in that February, whenever it was, and you hammered out a deal with ownership and that was that you didn't, you didn't have seven-year deals. You didn't have eight, ten-year deals. I mean, guys literally signed one-year contracts. So to become a free agent at that point in time, 
in the infancy of it, you basically had to play a season without a contract. Hmm. And Lyman took a big risk in 1977 by doing that. He went into the spring. um, They were trying to work out a deal. You know, Calvin Griffith, the owner of the Twins, was notorious for being miserly. Of course, his defenders would say it was a small market ball club. They were trying to stay profitable. His detractors would say he ran off bukus of talent in that era. But, um, (laughs) you know, the bottom line is, Lyman did not want to sign a contract for 80000 or whatever it was, so he ended up maybe one of the great bargains in the history of sports. The guy hits three thirty six with a three eighty nine on base percentage or whatever it was, and he got twenty grand that year because wow. he got the salary he got the year before. He he did not sign – he did not play under a contract in 1977. So that's essentially – what you had to do then to become a free agent. The, the, the arbitrator, I think Peter Seitz was his name at the time, that was how the, the legal precedent was established. Messersmith and McNally had not played with a contract, so therefore they were under no obligation to that team because they had not had a contract. So that's more or less in simple or maybe not so simple terms how he became a free agent. And he went into, I think, the first – free agent draft was 1976. He was in the second one, which was the following year, 1977. The very uh, odd rules, complicated rules, like a a certain number of teams could draft players. I think it was like 13. Yeah. 13 teams. teams. And then when they, when that was it, that was it, you know, no more teams could, could draft the guy. And those teams had equal rights to uh, negotiate with a player. And, um, in the end, um, with, with Lyman, it really came down to two teams, the New York Yankees and the uh, California Angels. And that's really one of the fascinating stories of Lyman Bostock era. You know, I know a lot of fans of that era kind of know the Bronx is burning Yankees. And it's fascinating <laughs> to think the what if had Lyman Bostock gone to the New York Yankees instead of the California Angels. One of those what is, of course, he could still be alive sure, today. Sure. Um he he could have won numerous World Series. Um but um I, I definitely touched on that in the book as well as far as, you know, how he would have fit into that crazy drama with, with Pinella and, and uh Reggie Jackson and Thurman Munson and Billy, Billy Martin, Martin and, and and uh obviously Steinbrenner. But he was right in the thick of that. Um at the end of the day, it came down to a big, I think the big factor for Lyman was to go home. He considered Los Angeles his home. He had grown up there. That's where you know, most of his fa- uh, friends were, his family. His mother lived in Los Angeles. Um, the Angels were able to come up with a financial package. If there was one team at that time that was willing to throw the money around the way that the Yankees, or at least somewhat throwing the money around the way the Yankees were in the American League, it was Gene Autry, um, you know, he had spent a, a lot of money to get Joe Rudy. He had spent a lot of money to get uh, G, uh, Bobby Gritch. Um, so they were trying to build something like the Yankees um, in, in Southern California. And um, I think probably one of the biggest factors was I think Lyman saw the tension, saw the drama in New York. And really didn't want to be in the middle of that. He had played in Minnesota, you know, obviously in that period of time, you know, today you can watch any team anytime. But back then, a guy like Lionel Bostock playing in Minnesota, the only time people in the East Coast would see him was like maybe a Saturday game of the week. 
Um, he never played in an all-star game. So he, he, you know, he had kind of thrived in a small market where, I mean, he was known, but he wasn't in a fishbowl the way Reggie Jackson and Thurman Munson and those guys were. So I don't know if he would have responded in that environment quite as well. Um, we'll never know, but, right. uh, you know, I, I think that was probably the biggest factor because, I mean, the money that we're talking about was pretty comparable. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, he was he was wary of the media and the spotlight that's shown on the players, up, up as particularly at that period of time with the eight. Sure, and he was still young. Oh, yeah, he was, what, 20, 26, I think? Yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, he, he, I mean, he was a young guy. He was uh, 26 when he, uh, uh, after the seven, you know, 77, he was 26, turns uh, 27, his, uh, his year with uh, the California Angels, and he helped put the Angels into contention. But before we get there, you know, you, you talked about, we, we, we painted a really good picture of Lyman Bostic when he gets to the major leagues. But what about his childhood? You just talked about it. His, uh, you know, one of the reasons he went back to California to play for the Angels was because that's where he grew up. His parents split. He moved to L.A. without his dad. Tell us a little bit about his childhood. It wasn't easy. Sure. No. Well, he he was born in 1950 in, um, in Birmingham, Alabama. His father was still playing baseball, but it was not the Negro leagues that we think of today, the Indianapolis clowns, the Birmingham black Barons. by, by the early fifties, the, the Negro leagues was essentially dissolving. So he ended up, and it's really kind of a fascinating story as far as his own career. He ended up going to places like Canada up, up to Winnipeg, um, he played some in the Dakotas. He basically went where he could find an opportunity to play. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for Lyman Bostock Jr. and his mother, he was not really around in his early years. He was he was off playing baseball, that nomadic baseball life. Um, mm-hmm. So when, when Lyman was, um, I think, about three years old, they first moved to Gary, Indiana, which is obviously where a big part of our, our story goes to eventually but he lived there for a few years um Lyman's mother a couple of her brothers worked in the steel mills up there so he lived there but then in 1957 they moved to Los Angeles uh I think she saw opportunities there that were greater clearly than in the Jim Crow South say Birmingham Alabama um but even more so than in Gary Indiana I think she saw an opportunity for for Lyman to really have a shot there. Um, clearly it wasn't easy, um, with a, you know, living with with a single mother, but she worked hard. Um, according to, uh, you know, Lyman's uh, college coach, who probably gave me the best firsthand account of Miss Bostock. She was, you know, very nurturing lady, but she was a no nonsense lady. She really kept Lyman in line and she effectively served that dual role of mother and father. Um, she worked for a number of years um, in the supply room of, of one of the hospitals in L.A., um, and, and Lyman was her life. I mean, she lived to, you know, to provide him the opportunities that he would ultimately get. Um, so Lyman, even from a very young age, had a deep sense of, 
of home and community. And I, I think maybe even more so than, than what you see in today's ball players, he, I think, realized um, just how far he had been able to come and, and he wanted to, to give back and, and provide, you know, similar chances or at least, you know, put his face up there and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm of you. I'm one of you. So mm-hmm. that, that was, I'm convinced that was a big part of why he uh, went to play for the Angels. Um, but when you start getting into his teen years, you know, obviously, you know, those were turbulent years in Los Angeles, you know, manual arts high school. As I was researching his high school years, I saw that there was actually a riot at his school his senior year. This was the uh, fall of 1967, I believe it was, uh, a very uh, tense situation with, with racial uh, overtones. There was a, a, a teacher walkout um, over the conditions. Um, so in this kind of turbulent environment of, you know, the late 1960s in Los Angeles, you know, he lived like five miles from Watts, where the uh, the Watts riots, that was when I think he was like a freshman in high school. So he kind of was exposed to some of this kind of um, turbulence and, and, and strife that, that, that hit the inner cities at this period of time. But, um, you know, he was able to kind of keep um, his focus, He was, at least in high school. He was, you know, he, he as far as I, my research, he did not get in any type of legal trouble in high school. He was able to kind of keep his grades on track. He graduated from high school and, and he was able to, you know, be a, a quality enough baseball player to, to you know, garner the attention of, of San Fernando Valley State and, and earn a chance to play collegiately. Um, but I do believe he felt um, an obligation once he had made it as a big leaguer to um, to give back to the inner cities. That that was something that was very important to him. So I think those years uh, touched him very deeply um, and and kind of helped make him the the, the man that that he ultimately was. And that's really interesting too because. What society was as he was growing up like that, what you said earlier about the 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 black power movement and and what he did in college, and then later giving back in a most extraordinary way, which we'll get to as well, um, I find it really interesting with all that that he became that kind of a person that would give back. Well, I, I believe that um, that was partially instilled in him by his mother. But I think even as, as you know, a, a, a guy in college, he, he had that sense. One of the stories that Coach Eager told me that I relayed in the book was a story of how the day before, or actually it was the day of the national championship game in 1972, Lyman and some of his teammates had decided to put on kind of an impromptu clinic for some of the young kids. Um, I think I want to say it was Springfield, Missouri, where the championship was was held at that time. I believe that's correct. Uh And they went out there. And then when it was time for the game, Coach Eager was ready to start, you know, knocking some some infield. They had no balls. And he he goes to Lyman and says, what the heck? Where are the baseballs? He's like, oh, well, I gave them to those kids. And Coach Eager was about to kind of freak out on Lyman. But then Lyman told him why. He's like, you know, those those kids didn't have any baseballs. And, you know, we, we have them. And I just felt like they needed him more than we did, Coach. <laughs> and, you know, Coach Eager said that was Lyman Bostock. That moment was who he was. He, he just, you know, he, he it was almost like he was 
willing to take away from himself to give to other people. So I just think he kind of had that charitable nature. And there's been other stories. You know, one of the probably most famous stories is when he offered to give back his salary after he kind of had a slump that first year. But even beyond that, you know, I read, you know, stories about, you know, during the off season after he had signed that big contract, he went out and spent hundreds of dollars on gloves and balls and bats. And he held these clinics in the inner city and just invited the kids out and just gave them equipment. He wanted kids. And I think even then he saw that disconnect in the inner cities. Um, You know, this was during a period obviously where the city people were, you know, moving, moving out of the cities and the cities were kind of becoming decayed. And he saw then that, you know, the, the professional athlete needs to do more to, um, you know, touch the youth. And the other thing that he had, a, uh, you know, he actually had a quote in the sporting news. Um, he gave money to the churches to try to help the alcohol situation in the inner cities. Delay. I think he was really in tune wow. with what was decaying the inner cities in Los Angeles. It was the corner liquor store. It was, you know, the, the, the gang violence because these kids don't have a structured environment and they don't have a, an activity to keep them occupied. So I think he understood 40 years ago some of the things that we, when you talk to sociologists now, the things that kind of are part of that decay of the inner city, I think he got that 40 years ago and was trying to be, you know, a beacon in, a, in the rough seas, whatever cliche you want to use. Um, so, and I think part of it comes up with his upbringing. Everything I've heard, his, he, he had an outstanding mother who, who really, you know, like I say, took on both roles and really instilled a lot of just decency in him. Yeah. Um, but um, I think also there was just this this spirit of wanting to help perhaps somebody become him one day. Um, I, I think that was part of it, too. Uh, really a, a phenomenal human being when you get down to it and such a tragic loss, which, again, we'll get to in just a little bit. Uh, sticking with his childhood, two other things I want to hit. Just one uh, uh, I found amusing. Redbone. Can you talk about Redbone? <laughs> That's actually a quote from, I want to say, another uh, sporting news article. I believe that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was a nickname given to him by one of his uncles when he lived in Gary, Indiana, as a youth. And I think, and I obviously want to be careful here, I think it had something to do with the complexion of his skin. (laughs) I think he was perhaps... Uh, of a of a complexion that, that implied them to call him that, but um, obviously you know that was a long time ago and I wasn't there, but um, yeah, but that that's kind of the story that he got a uh, kind of an interesting nickname from one of his uncles. He's one of the unique players that threw right-handed but batted left-handed, and this was because he was sort of forced to to throw right-handed because when he was eight years old, someone stole his mitt and his mother couldn't afford to get him another one. What happened? Well, what, yes, he, he, he had his gloves stolen and what happened, he, he got used to making basket catches, kind of like the Willie Mays style. You can see him kind of just uh-huh. flipping the glove down that little nice and easy. And that's actually how he caught the ball <laughs> right on through high school. And, and you know, I, I know um, 
Gene Mock, among others, kind of fought with him on that a little bit and mm-hmm, try to catch mm-hmm. the ball the way the, the way you know an outfielder is supposed to catch it. But um, yeah, it comes back. He uh, he had a I want to say it was a Carl Yastrzemski glove that got stolen, and he actually that was his kind of his favorite player growing up because he was a left-handed hitter and kind of I think he fancied himself to be that kind of a you know a consistent thread at the plate, but um. But yeah, he, uh, he he lost his glove when he was a kid, and and you know kind of had to learn some things backwards. He had he had a right-handed glove, and and at first he kind of think he was probably at least in the very beginning a natural lefty. But as time went on, he, he strengthened his uh, his ability to throw right-handed. But he was always a natural left-handed uh, hitter, and um, so was his father. So um, he did kind of get that in common mm-hmm, with his father. Mm-hmm. So he loves playing baseball, makes the you know, makes a mark in high school, goes to college. His junior and senior years, he 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 plays college ball. The Twins took notice, but they didn't draft him until the 26th round. Why so late? And by the way, there have been some great ball players taken very late in the baseball draft. Uh, you know, Andre Dawson was taken in the 11th round, Nolan Ryan in the 12th. Those are two Hall of Famers right there. Albert right. Pujols, who's going to be a Hall of Famer, was taken in the 13th. And, of course, you know, one of my favorite stories is the favor that Tommy Lasorda did for Mike Piazza's dad Mike and, <laughs> and took him in the 62nd round. My gosh, I didn't even know there were 62 rounds in baseball. That worked out for the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, again, another Hall of Famer. Why was Lyman right. taken so late? Well, I, I would argue probably the biggest part of it was that he was relatively unknown. Um, he, he, as a high school player, again, he was kind of this raw talent, you know, and there were, you know, we know of now the Pac-12, then they were the Pac-8, you know, the Arizona mm-hmm. States, the UCLA's, the Southern Cows. They knew of linemen, but they just weren't quite convinced he was of that caliber of a player. So he just didn't get those big-time offers. I think if he had played for a Arizona State, a Southern Cal, a UCLA, he possibly could have gotten drafted even higher than he did. But he was kind of playing in relative obscurity. I think, honestly, if he had not led that team to a national championship uh, appearance, he may have not gotten drafted at all, or he may have gotten drafted even further down. But um, the Twins took a flyer on him. Uh, they, you know, We'd mentioned before you know, they were, they were kind of in a situation where they um, needed some depth in the outfield, and uh, he was he was just in a good uh, good place for them. Um, it, it worked mm-hmm. out tremendously for Lyman in in the long run. It was, you know, when you look at the teams and if you go down the the rosters of that year, I mean, there, there's not too many other teams that he could have gotten to the big leagues that quickly. It just it, it worked out. But yeah, I mean, certainly I think a lot of teams two years later would have <laughs> looked back and said, man, we should have taken him before, yeah. <laughs> before he was taken. But, uh, you know, it was interesting, you know, and it's funny today when you think about how primitive things were in 1972. Coach Seeger actually told me the story of how Lyman signed with the Twins. Um, the scout came to his house and he didn't have an agent. I mean, agents, you know, agents in 1972, I don't even know if that was a thing. But, um, you know, Coach Heger was kind of there just kind of helping usher the thing along. And the big thing that um, Mrs. Bostock was insistent upon is 
lineman come back and graduate. Now, ultimately, he never did. I, I think he probably would as if he had Just lived didn't longer. didn't have an opportunity. But, um, they did agree, my understanding, the twins agreed that if it didn't work out, and you see this in contracts all the time, it might even be a standard thing in contracts now, but they agreed that if it didn't work out and his professional career did not lead to the big leagues, that they would pay for him to go back and complete his schooling at San Fernando Valley State. So that was a big hmm. sticking point with Lyman's mother. She wanted him to get his education. So with that in play, and the other thing Coach Eater told me is they wanted to make sure he had enough money that he could make it through that off season. He because he would go, you know, kind of to, to a short season A ball situation that that first year, which he did. He went to Charlotte um, and played that first summer, but then he had to to go until the very all the way to the next year uh, with no income. So they were able to work it out, and um, he was able to sign. And within a week, he was he was off uh, off to the Southern League and playing a. Well, no, I think suddenly it was double A. I'm sorry, but he was playing A ball within two weeks after finishing that College World Series uh, with San Fernando Valley State. So it was a quick turnaround. And um, you know, you look at his numbers that first uh, that first pro season. The thing that interested me was how many walks he had. Now that could be attributed partially to A ball pitching, but he he seemed to show a really nice uh, discipline at the plate that that mm-hmm. first pro season and it, it allowed him to move up the ranks there were only two guys off that a ball team i think the other one was uh wilfong uh that they were the only two that made it to the big league rob wilfong were the only two off that a ball team he played on mm-hmm. that made it to the big leagues but um he uh he was able to kind of come in and, and show that he had some plate discipline and and he could um you know, he was never a power hitter, but he was able to come in and, and play a solid outfield and be a, you know, a, a solid everyday player. He got promoted the next season to Orlando, uh, the Twins double-A team, and he got hurt in spring training that year. I think he injured his ribs while he was swinging, and he ended up missing a good chunk of that 73 season, but he still hit over 300. Then the next year, he got promoted to Tacoma, and that's where he really took off. He was one of the leading hitters in the Pacific Coast League, made the Pacific Coast League all-star team in 74. I want to say, I think a a person on Amazon may have provided me this feedback on the talking about the book, but I think he may still have a record up in in Tacoma uh, for the the average he put up that season. I want to say he was in the, I have to look up, it was in the 320s, I want to say. But, um, he showed by the end of '74 that he was he was ready to at least be considered as a major league uh, outfielder. He was not guaranteed anything, but they did uh, put him on the expanded roster that off season, so he was protected. They gave him a, just a fair shot to come in, in in the spring of '75, and he lit it up. He had a you know an outstanding spring and. They had no choice. They they they, they promoted him, him to the big club, and um, starting with opening day 1975, he was in the major leagues. And the crazy thing is, you said his name earlier, Gene Mock. What did Gene have to say about Lyman? What what impressed Gene? So you know, why was Gene so impressed with Lyman Bostic? Well, I think one of the things was the fact that he was such a just a natural player. He was. You know, uh, there was a little, from what I understand, particularly in that last season when Lyman was already unhappy with his contract situation and 
the ownership of the twins. There was a little bit of a beef between him and Gene Mock, and it, it kind of stemmed from the fact that Lyman wanted to be the center fielder. He wanted to be the leadoff hitter, play center field. But uh, Gene Mock saw versatility. He, you know, he, he was able to kind of put Lyman where he needed to put him. He could play right field one day. He could play left field. He could bat him second. He could bat him sixth. And really, when you look particularly those seasons in Minnesota, Mock used him all over the lineup. I mean, he did not pencil him in every day lead off center field. He did a lot, but he didn't do it every day. And he really, but I think that's a tribute to how versatile Lyman was. He had really learned how to play the outfield at a San Fernando Valley. Uh, Coach Eager told me how uh, the uh, outfield wall, they had this huge kind of concrete outfield wall, and there was two elements of it. One, you had to learn the ricochet off this thing, because if you weren't careful, the ball would bounce right on past you off the wall. And the second thing was you had to learn how to play this wall, because if not, you get knocked cold out there, because it was a, a concrete wall. So having to play this wall in college really helped Lyman by the time he got to the major leagues. He was able to... um really understand you know how to how to how to address a, a ball near the wall he was able to um you know kind of have a, a little bit better idea of how seeing the ball off the bat and it was you know a little bit tricky at, at metropolitan stadium um with that kind of multi-tiered stadium the way it was there but um you know i, I think he just he adapted well um to, to the major leagues and you know i think you know lyman was one of these guys that you know felt destined, if you will, and was able to kind of just, um, he, he, he didn't lack in confidence. I think that's mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that, you know, is, is maybe half the battle with a lot of guys is not just having the ability to play the game, but knowing you have the ability to play the game. And I think that's something that Gene Mock was able to also kind of bring out in Lyman. I think um, you see a lot of comments Gene Mock built Lyman up in the press, and I don't know if he felt like he needed to do that or he just it's what came out of his mouth. But um, he really saw something in Lyman Bostock that perhaps I don't know if other managers would have seen it. Maybe they would have. Maybe they would have been dumb not to. But uh, he definitely was able to get the most out of Lyman as a player. He was able to um, keep him motivated, and that might have been some of the thing with kind of moving him around in the lineup, not just saying, all right, you're going to be my center fielder and lead off every day. Um, you know, he'd lead off one day, but then the next day he'd be six, you know. And then it's kind of funny, the day that he hit for the cycle at Comiskey Park in July 1976, he batted him clean up. Mm. And this is a guy that did not hit home runs. I think his biggest, I think he might hit 14 home 14 runs. 14 in 77, 77, yeah. And that's the most he hit at any level anywhere. I mean, he was not a, a 2020 guy, I mean, or even a... <laughs> He he just wasn't a big power hitter, but he he was able to put him in the lineup, and, and it was almost like an instinct thing. He would, or maybe it was just a hey, how, let's give this a shot today, right. <laughs> kind of thing. But uh, but I will say this: Gene Mock had a lot to work with in those years, um, particularly in '77. When you look at that lineup, Larry Heisel, Rod Carew, um, Butch Weiniger, um, I mean, they had a lot of talent in that lineup. Um, so, uh, I think Lyman was able to kind of fit into that and become quickly intermeshed in that. And, uh, he, he used what he was given. Um, you know, he, he, he had a, you know, a, a level of talent, 
But I think Gene Mock was able to kind of bring even more out of him um, once he kind of got him acclimated to the big leagues and and got in there and was able to um, to work with him some. Now, they didn't get along every minute. Like I say, I think if, if Lyman was here today, he'd say, I wish Gene would have batted me lead off and played me center field every day. But um, they they worked well enough together um, in, in that they, they both um, understood each other, I think. I, I think uh, Gene knew that, you know, picking him up in the press and giving him, you know, props in the media, you know, Lyman was going to read that. And even if he wouldn't acknowledge it, he would read it and he would know it. And he'd know that, that his manager had his back, mm-hmm. even though he may not be doing things exactly every day the way he wished. Um, but but I, I definitely think Gene Mock was a positive influence on Lyman. Um, you know, I think Gene Mock is remembered mainly for the for the missed opportunities. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, all those those times he came so close. Um, the Twins, especially those last couple of years after Burt Blylevin left, they just didn't have the pitching to compete in the AL West with the Kansas City Royals, with the Oakland A's. They just didn't have the the arms to do it. But um you could put their offense up against anybody in the American League, particularly in 1977. And he was a big part of it. That was his that was his breakout year. He hit 336 with the 14 homers, 90 ribbies. He had an OPS of 897, and he cashed in on that by going to the Angels in free agency. He was a star in the making. And I just can't yeah. get over the fact that Calvin Griffith the Twins owner, who we talked about before, just he dragged his feet. He wouldn't offer him the kind of money that you would think a guy like Lyman Bostick should have been offered. What was Cal Griffith thinking? Well, if you if you go back to the to the research of the era, you know I think again people that you know would defend Calvin Griffith would suggest that he was you know trying to stay. Uh, profitable he was a you know the twins were were a small market club they were not um having quite as much success as they had had um particularly in the mid 60s and then kind of in the late 60s and early 70s when billy martin was there um you know attendance was a little bit on the decline there were there were some factors involved um that didn't necessarily have to do with lyman bostock in that in that case i think there was also the dual situation of Larry Heisel, because if you go back and look at Larry Heisel, I mean, he was a more desired free agent in, in that off season than even Lyman was. I mean, he ended up signing a big contract with the Milwaukee Brewers. And that was, you know, obviously he, he survived, but right. it was another tragic story. He suffered kind of a freak arm injury and was just never the same player. But, um, the, the twins were in a little bit of a bind in that, in that time. I mean, they had Rod Carew, who was, you know, arguably the best player in baseball. They had to watch Burt Blylevin go away. They ended up watching Bill Campbell sign with the Boston Red Sox. Um, but but I, I definitely think at the end of the day, Calvin Griffith was stingy. And that, and that's going to be ultimately, I think, his legacy. Now, it's kind of interesting. You know, 10 years later, I found a, an old article uh, from 1987 where Calvin Griffith actually claimed he offered more money than the, than the California Angels, and I have trouble believing that to be. I, you know, I read something like that as well too, or he offered very close to what the Angels, or had he offered. may have matched what the Angels. But but by that time, the damage had been done. You know, Lyman 
went into that that spring of '77 in good faith. He he asked for I believe it was one hundred twenty five thousand um, dollars, and the twins balked at it. Um, they they wouldn't even come close to matching that. Um, and and they kind of had an acrimonious um, spring. And Lyman finally came out and said, if if we don't get a deal done by the end of spring training, we're not going to get a deal done because I'm not going into the season with a contract hanging over my head. So that's ultimately what happened. He he was not bluffing. And throughout the summer, uh, the Twins threw some offers at him, but he had stated and, and he meant it that he was not going to negotiate during the season and it just so happened he had the best season of his life so his his leverage by that point couldn't be higher and um the twins just dropped the ball i mean i don't i don't really know what else can be said they uh they allowed one of the one of the emerging hitters in the american league to leave them and they got they got nothing they um, not only did they get nothing they watched him go to one of their divisional rivals yeah and and that's where Carew would wind up a couple years later. So so Lyman does. He goes to the Angels, and this is where the story of Lyman Bostic should really blossom, but it doesn't. So he starts off slowly and is, I don't know how you say it, embarrassed, uh, ashamed, just not happy by his performance. And he goes to Gene Autry and he says, I can't accept my first paycheck. And and Gene's like, well, that's not allowed. You can't. You you have to accept it. How poorly did Lyman play? Did he hit? How poorly did he hit that he was ashamed to accept his paycheck? And what arrangement did he and Gene Autry come up with for that paycheck? Well, he got after a miserable start. I think he was something like two for 47 at one point. He was um, hitting a lot of ground balls to second base, hitting into a lot of double plays. Lyman Vostok never was really a strikeout guy, but he wasn't hitting those line drives that he was he was so well known for. He was he was just really beating the ball into the ground. Uh, pitchers were uh, having a little bit more success getting ahead of him early in the count, and he was just not comfortable at Plate. Um, I think people now would would call that to suggest that he was pressing. He was just kind of pushing mm-hmm, a little bit mm-hmm. too hard to try to to try to earn his paycheck, if you will. He had he knew he had come there. This was a, a team that had kind of been knocking on the door. They had not really had a lot of uh, success, but they they felt like they were on the brink. You know, you get guys like Don Baylor and Nolan Ryan. I mean, they they really felt like they were in a position to to kind of conquer that division. You know, Kansas City was was strong, but, but the, the angels felt like they, they could compete in that division. And mm-hmm. uh, Lyman just got off to a slow start. He was, he was just not comfortable that first month. Um, but it's really interesting after that, he was the second best hitter in baseball the rest of the season. I mean, he ended up hitting, I don't know, like three, 296. Yeah, oh, the rest he, of the yeah, season. He finished yeah. the year at 296. That's correct. But um, he he was hitting well over well over 300 uh, for the for the the vast majority of that summer. Once he kind of got going, um, but uh, you know, it was kind of an interesting dynamic um, even there. Um, you know, the Angels had a little bit of a you know, a, a problem. They were, they were underachieving. 
midway through the season, um, Garcia got fired, and they bring in um, Jim Pergosi, who had been a player at the start of that season. He had kind of finished his major league career, kind of almost like a Joe Torre, like kind of like a player manager. Now he was not a player manager with the Angels, but you don't. I'm, what I'm getting at is you don't see a guy today, like in April, he's finishing his big league career, and then by June, he's managing right, a major right. league team. So <laughs> this this was what happened with the Angels, but um. I think Fergosi brought a calming presence to that locker room. I think he saw that Lyman was pressing, that he was just really trying to force the issue. Really, the breakout was a game at Fenway Park. Uh, uh, I think it was about a week or maybe even less than a week after Fergosi got hired. Lyman went four for five and just broke out. And from, from that point, he was... He was outstanding the rest of the season. So I think um, I, I think a change of scenery, um, at least as far as the manager, helped. Um, definitely working with the hitting coach, Bob Skinner, who you know had been a big league manager. He mm-hmm. managed the Philadelphia Phillies. Very knowledgeable big league yep. guy. Um, I, I just think he, 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 he was able to relax, and he put the time in to just kind of work himself out of that slump. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, I found a, um, an interview with uh, Carney Lansford, who was a, a young player on that team, and he talked about how much Lyman helped him as far as, like, understanding scenarios. And, you know, for it didn't – it wasn't immediate – but it was at some point that summer, Lyman started hitting second and Carney Lansford started hitting third. And you can literally see both players' numbers kind of take off hmm. once Fergosi did that. Because, you know, Lansford was obviously a great hitter, a, a, a batting champion in his own right. And, you know, you got a guy like Lyman Bostock hitting in front of you. So, that, you know, it was, it, was, it was starting to come together. That's what I would say. Now, they were not going to win the division that year. Kansas City had... But had, they were in the hunt. Um, they were in the hunt. But they were right there. Yeah, they were right there to the last week. And, you know, if you think about modern times, they would have probably been right there in position to, to win the wild card. Sure. Tell us about the paycheck. So Lyman went to the owner and he went to the general manager, Buzzy Bavese, and said he wanted to give his money back. He did not earn his salary. He did not, in his opinion, um, do uh, what what he was being paid to do. Could you imagine and he offered, that today? It, it's, it's amazing. It's unheard of. So, uh, so, like you were saying before, Gene Autry said, look, we, we, we can't take your money back. So what he ended up doing, and it was pretty clever, and I think this even gets to the essence of the man, because I think nowadays a lot of big leaguers, I mean, they're, they're charitable, but there's the notoriety that comes with it. Lyman not only gave that entire paycheck to charity, and you can go back and look at newspaper articles at the time, he was insistent that all the donations were kept private and confidential. And to be perfectly honest with you, I couldn't tell you who he gave that money to because Mm -hmm. he didn't want it to be known. He was one of these guys that gave, didn't expect, and didn't want people to know he did it. So, um, you know, again, I think that speaks to the essence of who he was. He gave that money, and I'm sure it went to local churches and you know, charity groups, boys clubs, YMCA's. If I had to speculate, I would guess all of those local groups in Los Angeles got a chunk of that money. We're talking like forty thousand yeah. dollars, <laughs> which was in nineteen seventy-eight, probably like a hundred today. At so least a, a fair chunk of money. Um, 
but uh, he, he just didn't feel like he'd earned that money. And, and the big thing, he didn't do that to curry favor with the fans, you know. And he even, you know, he, he didn't really face a lot of booze or a lot of, like, the fans didn't really turn on him. Like you see with some people, like I remember George Foster got that big contract with the Mets, and they right. pretty much hated him the whole time. He didn't really deal with that. And I think that also comes back to the element of who he was. You know, George Foster was standoffish with the press. He was kind of standoffish with the fans, wouldn't sign autographs. Lyman Bostock would sit there for 30 minutes and sign every kid's autograph until there wasn't any more kids around. So I think that was an element of why the Angels fan base, even in his darkest moments of that slump, did not. They they didn't want to make it harder on him. You know what I'm saying? Like they come to the ballpark, it's like, you know, booing this man is not going to help him. So, but I think that again gets back to to the nature of who he was, um, and and the fact that the fans never turned on him. And then of course when he got going later that summer, you know, they were they were there for him. But uh, sure, you know, he 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 just didn't feel like he had earned that paycheck. And I think it was a, a, a it was not a publicity ploy. I think if it had been a publicity ploy, he would have listed off every organization and he had, would have gone and had his picture taken. He was ashamed of how he had played, period. Right. And, and right. I think he just didn't feel like he had earned his money. So, so Which he, is a rare thing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's unheard of. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody in any sport right now that would do such a thing. And, and, and it's in, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, well, no, it's interesting because actually uh, during all of this, Gene Autry told Lyman, look, you might hit 500 next month. That doesn't mean I'm going to pay you more. So, you know, I think even the ownership had the perspective of, look, you know, this is this, we're paying you to do a job. And, yeah, you might have underachieved this month, but, you know, you may highly overachieve next month and you're going to get the same paycheck. So, you know, I, I just like I say, it's, it's just an unheard of uh, thing for a ball player to to do. And particularly the way he handled it is just. It's just something you don't see. Yeah, and and it looked at you know after that slow start, it looked like the Angels had gotten themselves a superstar. He had a horrible start, but by late September, like you said, he was just hitting the cover off the ball. Um, was hitting two ninety six to get his average from a two for forty seven up to two ninety six. You got to be doing something right. Had the Angels in the hunt, they were chasing after the Royals, then tragedy. Just horrific. Tell us about September 24th, 1978, a day that started off so innocently and ended so horribly. Well, it began with a um, with a game at Comiskey Park against the White Sox. Um, when Lyman went to Chicago, he had gotten special permission, and he also did this in the years he was with the Minnesota Twins. He got special permission from the ball club to go stay with his uncles that lived in Gary, Indiana. It's about a 30-minute drive outside of the city, and he would stay with them, and it was like an event when Lyman would come to town because he he had lived there briefly. And what he also did, as I learned from his college coach, he would go there during the summers because they had some really strong semi-pro baseball up in that area. And he would go up there Mm -hmm. and play during the summer. So point is he had a, a large base of friends and family 
in Gary, Indiana. And when he would come to town, it was it was like, you know, the conquering hero comes home. They would, you know, invite the neighbors over. They would have a nice meal. They would reminisce and talk and everything. So he had done that um, the night before the Friday. They played the Friday night game. So the Saturday, he, he goes to the ball game and um, gets a couple of hits. And um, the the Angels, as we mentioned, were kind of in the pennant race, but time was running out on them. It was one of those situations where they had kind of been within five or six games most of the summer. But then you get down to the last week, five or six games is kind of do or die time. So sure. what had happened, they lost that day to the White Sox, a one-run loss. Lyman makes the last out. And the game more or less, because later on that night, the Kansas City Royals win, clinches a tie. They were not mathematically eliminated, but they were basically going to have to like win the last six games, and the Royals were going to have to lose the last six games to force a one-game playoff. So they were basically done. Um, Lyman, as the you know accounts of that day go, was visibly distraught after the game uh, with his own um, inability to come through that last at-bat. He walked past Don Baylor, um, and as the story goes, he just kind of flung his jersey into the into the locker, went and took a shower, and was just in and out of that locker room in a matter of minutes. I mean, he was he was just abrupt in his business. He was not jolly, chatting, friendly, jovial like Lyman normally was. He was upset because even though for the most part he was you know a, a you know pleasant guy to be around, he was a competitor, and and he knew that they had pretty much blown their chance to get into the playoffs with that loss. So this was kind of the backdrop as they made their way to Gary that night with his uncles. And they kind of had a caravan of cars mm-hmm. that would go to, go to, well, I guess they called it White Sox Park then, but we all know it as Comiskey Park, mm-hmm. but I believe in the 70s they called it for a brief period White Sox Park. But anyway, they go to Gary, they eat dinner, they're hanging out, kind of just relaxing, doing whatever. So as the, the story's told, Lyman asks about um, a young girl that when he had gone up to, to Gary in his younger days, he had read to her and kind of talked to her and kind of served as a, a mentor, if you will, to her. And he asked his uncle and his uncle agreed to drive over to her home. Just, just see her, just you know, catch up because he knew this was going to be his last trip to Chicago this year. He wouldn't mm-hmm. be back until like May of the next year, so he was just trying to catch up with an old friend, basically. So he goes over to this house and he gets there, and her sister is named Barbara Smith, and she is involved in a tense battle with her husband. She's basically left her husband and they're estranged. He's uh, been abusive to her. He's he's tried to reconcile, but, but she's not having it. And more or less, um, they're split up. But he doesn't see it that way. So what happens, Lyman and his uncle go over to this house and unbeknownst to them, Leonard Smith the husband of the sister. Again, Lyman mm-hmm. didn't know her. This mm-hmm. was the sister of the woman he went to see. It just happened to be staying at that house because she was estranged from her husband. And this gets into just the utter randomness and the why did this happen? And it's just so mind boggling to get your mind around. But basically Leonard, uh, Leonard was stalking. He was, he was outside the house and was, 
um, just kind of following her movements. So if, if you can imagine a scenario where all of a sudden this nice um, Cadillac rolls up or whatever, I think, no, they're probably in a nice, like, old bill, something like that, um, rolls up. These two well-dressed men get out, one of which is kind of this dapper, good-looking young guy. Leonard Smith doesn't know who he is. All he knows is there's these two men going into the house. So he sees this. And then after a period of, I don't know, tw- I don't know if we'll ever know, but after a period of 20, 30 minutes, however long they were there, they agreed that they were going to go out and grab a bite to eat. So they, they get in the car, all four of them, and drive off. Well, Leonard Smith, sitting in his car, sees this. He follows them. Mm. There are varying accounts of what happened that night. If you look at, at newspaper accounts of the very next day, there are claims that there was like this high speed chase through the streets of Gary where Leonard's like got the gun out of the, but, but that's not what happened. As time went on, they were able to kind of really break down what happened. Um, he, he followed them slowly through the streets of Gary, Indiana for several miles Finally, they get to the corner of 5th and Jackson Street in downtown Gary, Indiana. Leonard Smith comes up beside them. He stops the car. They're at an intersection of stoplight. He gets out of his vehicle, and he fires once into the back seat of the car. Intending, according again, according to the police and everybody, intending to shoot his wife. But he ended up shooting Lyman. Um, Lyman was between him and his wife, and he took the brunt of the shot. It was buckshot, kind of like what you would use like if you went deer hunting. And Ugh. he was mortal he was mortally wounded. Ugh. He was not killed instantly. He was shot in the right temple and slumped in the seat. At first his uncle thought the car had backfired. He heard that pop. And I've actually, huh. I'm a little bit of a JFK assassination interest me as well. <laughs> and I, you hear that story of the put, 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 and they thought that there might've been like a motorcycle backfiring in that first moment. That's what the uncle thought that like his car had backfired. But then he looked back and, you know, Barbara Smith says, Hey, you know, uh, your, your nephew's shot. So he runs out. There was a, a, um, a convenience store, like a department store right there at the intersection. He runs in, uh, Leonard speeds off and races back to the, the townhouse he lived in that his mother owned and just kind of holds up. Um, Lyman is rushed, um, to nearby St. Mary's hospital. Um, Mortal, again, mortally wounded. Was, and I, I've actually, I, I went to Gary as I was kind of researching the book and I kind of did the, you know, kind of trek. And, and it's mm-hmm. all real. It's within a couple mm-hmm. of the, the hospitals right there, um, not even a mile away. So they got him to the hospital quickly. I mean, within five minutes of him being shot. And I actually was able to speak with a man by the name of Paul Hudgens, who was in the emergency room the night he was shot. Um, he had been injured. He was he was a steel worker, and he had I don't know how this happened, but he had gotten caught between two rail cars. He had had his like pelvis crushed mm. and was you know seriously injured. But um, I had seen an offhand quote from him, and I was able to look him up and says, and he he was fantastic, just giving me, and he just told me like just the intensity of that moment when they're just in this 
kind of one room emergency ward you know if you can envision an old style hospital with like one huge room with just curtains separating everybody and all of a sudden you hear this huge bustle of activity and all of a sudden this guy just piles in and there everybody just goes to work on him and attend to him and you know paul hudgens this guy i'm talking about kind of looks at one of the orderlies and is like what is what's going on and the orderlies like that's lyman bostock one of the one of the top baseball players in the american league so they kind of started putting it together right there in the hospital and mr hudgens explained to me that basically they realized within a few minutes that there was really nothing they could do, that he was mortally wounded, that they were not going to be able to save his life. So simply put, he, he just sat there and watched him die. He he, oh. just, he was uh, unable to uh, talk again. He did not uh, really do anything else as far as any movement. And he just, he, he slowly passed away. Uh, word got out fairly quickly. Um, you know, the, uh, the hospital called the team um, who were staying at the uh, Hyatt downtown Chicago. Uh, the first one that found out was the Angels' longtime um, clubhouse attendant, Freddie Federico. And within minutes, um, the, the word was, was spreading out. And the players obviously went into, you know, states of shock. Some got angry sure. and, like, you know, were, were wanting to like go find the guy and wanted to go to the hospital, Don Baylor and, you know, Ron Jackson, some of the guys that were especially close to Lyman, they wanted to go to the hospital, but, but they finally, you know, kind of taught them a little bit off the ledger and said, look, there's just nothing you can do. You know, what's done is done. And then it just became just, just a very painful, emotional moment that even to this day, the, 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 the players don't like to talk about it. And, um, quite understandably. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they just, um, kind of just went through a restless night of, um, just kind of an abyss. Um, they, they were able to get up with Uvine, uh, Lyman's wife, um, to let her know they rushed to LAX to try to get, um, to Chicago. Um, they they told them just before they were about to board the plane that he had died and and Uvine, uh to this day does not understand why they told them that uh, before they got on the plane mm. she was like you know we we could have found out after we landed so they basically had to fly from L A to Chicago with that news already uh, Mrs Bostock Lyman's mother was was quite understandably inconsolable sure and, um, was in a very uh, you know, despaired state of mind at that time. And, and they, they, um, you know, had a lot of difficulty on that flight, quite understandably. The next day they went to the hospital and were able to kind of make the, uh, the official, you know, verification, uh, that he was who he was and, and that type of thing. And then they went home to make the funeral arrangement. But the angels had to play a game the next day. Um, they decided to play the game, um, a little bit, you know, you would see this again a year later with Thurman Munson. Uh, when he died, the players right. voted, look, Lyman would want to play. I think the Angels felt that same sense that Lyman would want us to play this game. They did play the game, and some really, uh, really ironic things happened in that game. For one, Carney Lansford hit a home run in the first inning. Uh, you know, he had, like we had said before, he had kind of been behind uh, Lyman in the lineup all season and, um, you know, had kind of been able to benefit from having Lyman in front of him. 
uh, throughout the year, and, and he dedicated, of course, that Herman Wyman. Jim Fergosi got ejected from the game fairly early on. I want to say it might have been the third or fourth inning of that game. He was just emotionally uh, spent. spent and on a very uh, minor, you know, bang-bang play at first base. You know, he just basically went out there and got himself ejected from the ball game. Um, the Angels did win that game. Um, which kept him mathematically alive uh, for at least one more day in the um, American League race. But, uh, you know, obviously it was a difficult day. They they had kind of a, a religious ceremony before the game. Um, most of the players uh, really were not terribly receptive to, to talking to the media. You know, there were, you know, a lot of quotes from Jim Fergosi, like in the Chicago Tribune the next day, a lot of the, the um uh, a lot of the coaches had comments, but, you know, there weren't a lot of players that, that went on the record that next day about how they felt. Um, it, it would start kind of seeping out later. Um, but, uh, you know, they they went home and finished out the season that next week. Um, Ken Landro, uh, who ironically had played semi-pro ball with Lyman. They were both from Los Angeles mm-hmm. uh, back in the early 70s. And in fact, Ken Landro got the nickname Shadow that first spring of 78 because he followed Lyman around so much, the guys started calling him <laughs> Shadow because he had, I think he saw that, hey, this is a guy I want to emulate. And, you know, Lyman was sort of one of those guys we were talking about earlier, one of those young guys, you know, when Lyman was coming of age at San Fernando Valley, Ken Landro was, you know, a 15-year-old kid just trying to – so I think that that's what started seven, eight, ten years before. Ironically, Ken Landro then becomes the guy that replaces Lyman Bostock in the Angels lineup. Um, and they finish out the season uh, – Interestingly enough, the Twins or the Twins, the uh, the Angels won the American League West in 1979. Don Baylor won the MVP, right. and you can only wonder could they have have won a pennant or even a World Series had Lyman Bostock been in that lineup. Of course, they also won won AL West pennants in 1982 and 1986. So, I mean, you you think about that era as good as that team was, how much better could they have been if they had had a consistent 300, you know, 200 hits guy like Lyman Boss stuck in the lineup. And I think how many batting titles he could have won because he was becoming the preeminent hitter in the American League. You know, Rod Carew was still, you know, 77 was the zenith for him. It was kind of, I wouldn't say all downhill after that, but he was never able to kind of approach that. But the point is, you look at some of those, uh, batting title, you know, there was a gap between Rod Carew and Wade Boggs where Lyman Bostock could have won multiple batting titles in the early 80s. Absolutely. Um, he had that kind of talent. And, um, and and Wade Boggs, obviously, starting about 1983, kind of became the guy. But there was a window there where Lyman Bostock really could have been the best average hitter in the American League for several years. But unfortunately, we'll never know. Nope. Nope, we won't. Um, Leonard Smith, the amazing thing about that story, he got out of jail after just two years. It's really a disgraceful thing to happen, and I guess the only positive in it is that there were laws changed because of it. Um, He was – I mean, you can't really fault his attorneys. They – fault within the the legal framework of the state of Illinois at the time. 
um, or I'm sorry, Indiana at the time, um, they uh, used an, an insanity plea that basically he had been driven um, to what he did based on the fact that his wife not only flaunted relationships with other men, and there was actually um, some testimony in the first and second trials to that effect, but um, also that she was kind of getting a little bit of a sadistic pleasure in kind of um, stringing him along and toying him along. This was the effort made by his defense attorneys that she basically drove him insane. And even though she was not on a date that night with Lyman Bostock, in fact, tragically, she didn't even know the man 30 minutes. She certainly didn't go out of her way to imply that she wasn't going out with him that night. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems like in, in hindsight, such an open and shut case, um, first degree murder, um, premeditated murder. He got out of the car. Um, and, and, you know, in, in a lot of states, you only need one second of premeditation for it to be considered. I mean, right. literally, if, 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 if you think about it one second before it happens and it's premeditated, but, but they were able to use the existing, um, insanity laws in Indiana. Uh, the first trial was a mistrial. They had a second trial and he was declared legally insane. He was, um, incarcerated for, I want to say about a year, um, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and then finally the, uh, the, the authorities at the state mental hospital determined he was no longer criminally insane and they were required by law to release him. He, uh, he left, I want to say it was like the summer of 1980. Um, he never again ran afoul of the law. He went back to Gary, Indiana, lived in the same, uh, triplex, a far, I'm sorry, three story, uh, condo, uh, that his mother owned. He, um, Stories that he uh, he ran a uh, used car dealership briefly. He uh, kind of had odd jobs um, here and there, but he, he he managed to stay out of trouble the rest of his life. But you can only imagine the mm. uh, and, and Jim Fergosi. I saw a quote from Jim Fergosi before he died tragically a few years ago, um, mentioning that sometimes the uh, the prison within is is worse than any prison that can be mm. meted out by sure. by a judge. So you've just got to wonder um just how much and and Leonard Smith did not live in the old age. I think he died 3 or 4 years ago. I think he was in his mid, early to mid 60s. Um clearly a a haunted man, a man that was never really able to um get beyond uh what happened. Maybe he didn't actually have to sit in a cell for 30 years, but he was certainly in a cell of his own making. Um, he, he was isolated from the outside world. He refused to, to talk about it. There were, there were efforts made in his latter years by, by multiple people to, um, to try to get him to talk and he refused to. Um, but clearly, um, I, I don't think any, anybody could, could do something like that and, and not have it affect, um, affect their life. Um, he was, he, he just lived a very sad, miserable, pathetic existence. Um, so yeah, he may not have suffered, uh, through the criminal justice system, but I think clearly he, he paid a price, uh, for, for what he did. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what an awful story. Uh, uh, you know, just this, this phenomenal baseball talent with such a tragic end. 
Hey, while you were writing your book about Lyman, what was the most fascinating thing you learned about him? What surprised you most? I got to tell you, and it's kind of interesting, and it, it's a very positive, uplifting thing. In the summer of 1977, there was a family that set out on a trip to go to every major league baseball stadium. And they did. Over the period of about three weeks, they literally hit up every major wow. league stadium. 24 and stadiums at that time, right? No, 26. It was so- 77 was the expansion year with Toronto and right, Seattle. So, so, so 70, uh, so it was 26, 20, 26. Right. And, um, and it was so interesting The Detroit free press did a, did an in-depth article on them when the family was in Detroit and they asked, uh, one of the, there were two brothers and the father, there were three of them. And they asked one of the brothers out of all the players you've run into, who's your favorite player? And without hesitation, he said, Lyman Bostock. Wow. And he said, why? And he said, well, when we were in Toronto, we got introduced. They somehow got introduced. And as it turned out, they ended up going to like two other stadiums where the tw- where the uh, twins happened to be. Not only did Lyman acknowledge them, but he came up to them and talked to them before the game. So it's, it's almost like they cool. they became friends. Uh, during that period of time. So I thought that was a neat story. Another neat story I heard, and this was toward the end of of uh, August, in, or it might have even been in September in 78, getting very much toward the end. Um, the uh, the Angels had um, a night game, and they were finishing up a homestand, and there were these kids. He had, he had kind of signed autographs for them in the parking lot or whatever, and he was leaving the ballpark. And this was actually in, in an MLB.com article, an account from one of the guys, you know, after he was grown up. But apparently they were waiting for their parents in the parking lot. And Lyman said, well, come on. He took them to a Denny's restaurant and hung out with them until their parents came. Now, you name wow, a ball player, a professional so cool. ball player. Uh-huh. It would do something like that today. That would actually see a couple of kids in the parking lot and ask them, "Hey, where's your mom?" And they're like, "Oh, she'll be around." And he's actually like, "Well, get, come on with me. We'll hang out until your mom comes." Goes so, to show you the kind of so, person he was. So many stories like that. Another one was that that spring, that last spring when he was with the California Angels, uh, a kid who was a, a Chicago White Sox fan came up to him and just was trying to figure out who he was. So he ends up putting a stack of baseball cards in Lyman's hand and saying, which one are you? And Lyman (laughs) starts flipping through these cards and finds the one of him. And then he signs it. And another story, I mean, and the thing is, 40 years later, 35 years later, these stories are still vivid in these people's minds. He made an impression on people. He Um, touched people. He may not have lived very long. He may not have reached the accolades he would have. But in his short time, he impacted lives. And and that's when I think of his story. Those are the stories I, I... I don't even like to think about that last night when he died. It is so horrible. And I mean, obviously it's such an important part of telling the story, but when I think of Lyman Bostock, a man that died before I was even born, um, I, I try to think of those stories, the stories where he impacted people. Um, just, just, just a quality human being. Just, I mean, and, and I think, like I say, even if he had not ever played a game in the major leagues, 
I can see him being a community leader, uh, a guy that, you know, really is, is a beacon in, in the African-American community. I, I think he would have found that calling no matter what career he had gone into. And unfortunately he was just cut short. Yeah. You know, when I was doing research for this podcast, I was trying to think, how am I going to wrap this show? What's the last thing we could talk about? Man, and you just put a great wrapper on it. Those are some terrific stories. Adam, for people that want to read more of your work and and follow you, how do they do that? Are are you working on anything special right now? Well, it's kind of interesting. I've got a book I'm really interested in writing. I have not proposed it to my publisher yet, and I have not – started getting into it, but I'm really interested in writing a book about the night Satchel Page in 1965 took the mound when he was 59 years old and got nine out of 10 batters out against That's the Boston cool. Red Sox. That's cool. Um, he, uh, you talk about something that you'll never, I mean, you'll, you'll never see this again. A 59 year old man, not only, it was basically a publicity stunt. Charlie O'Finley was, was, you know, kind of, up into it. I mean, he was a year away from leaving Kansas city. I mean, they were routinely getting like 2,500 fans to games. So he's like, Oh, a week before he had had Burt Campanaris play all nine positions. That was one gimmick. So, Hey, why not bring Satchel Paige out of retirement? (laughs) But even that story is fascinating because there were, there were, um, he, he had not reached his service time to get his full major league pension. So there was an element where later he ended up coming on as a coach with the Atlanta Braves so he could get there, – there's just so many elements of it. And, and we're talking about maybe the greatest pitcher that ever lived. We'll never know how many games Satchel Page won. Right. But uh, the last time he appeared in a major league game when he was 59 years old, he got 9 out of 10 Boston Red Sox out. The only guy that got a hit off of him was Carl Yastrzemski. Go figure. Yeah. Um, and he uh, – you know, he was out there warming up to pitch the fourth <laughs> and they took him out to a chorus of booze, by the way. So, um, I- I'm fascinated, obviously, you know, Satchel Page is no longer with us, but, um, many, many of the players that played in that game are still alive and it's just going to require me to get on the phone and call them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, yeah. that's probably the one big idea I have for another baseball book. I've just got to kind of get, get going with it. <laughs> Well, Adam, I, I'll tell you what, get that book done. I'm definitely going to read that one. Thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I, it's a fabulous uh, podcast. Well, it's my pleasure, and, and hopefully if, uh, if we do anything else or if I get another book written, we can definitely chat again. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. You know, I was quite young when Lyman Bostick's life was so tragically cut short. I remember it. I remember how sad it was, and for whatever reason, his story has stuck with me all these years. I really believe Lyman was on his way to becoming a real superstar, a guy whose potential was only first being realized. He came up with the Twins in 1975 and hit 282 in 98 games. 1976 was his first full season, and in 128 games, he hit 323. In 1977, he hit 336 in 153 games to go along with 36 doubles, 12 triples, 14 home runs, 90 ribbies, and an OPS of 897. 
After signing his contract with the Angels and after getting off to a slow start, as Adam Powell pointed out, he caught fire. In 147 games, he hit a respectable 296, but he had to hit well over 300 from mid-May through September to get his average that high. Lyman was hot, and then it was all over. Who knows just how great he could have been, and that's part of the fun of sports, speculating what could have been, what might be. But in this type of instance, it's just sad. And the fact that his murderer, Leonard Smith, served such little time for his crime is mind-boggling. But like Adam pointed out, Smith's life was not a pleasant one even after he got out of jail. A horrible story for sure, but I thought to recall and talk about such a great ball player and such a promising career certainly fit the genre of sports forgotten heroes. And speaking of heroes, next time we're going to take a look back at the career of a baseball Hall of Famer so few have heard of. A guy who led his team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, to a world championship in 1925 and was considered to be one of the game's greats during his playing days but a guy who very few have ever heard of, Kai Kai Kyler. Thanks again to today's guest, Adam Powell. And if you want to learn more about Lyman Bostick, get a copy of Powell's book, Lyman Bostick, The Inspiring Life and Tragic Death of a Ball Player. We'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.